I've just seen that Blackbird go past again with more sandwiches. Maybe he works for Deliveroo. <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome once again to Bleak Strategies, a podcast loosely about being in a band and what that might mean. In this episode, I will once again be talking to my old friend and bandmate Paul, this time sort of about our 2013 album, Wild Light. Towards the end of the episode, we're going to answer some, but not all, of the questions posed to us via Twitter and email since the release of the first episode. Thanks for listening. So this week on the podcast, we are going to talk about an album we made called Wild Light, which we recorded in uh, or released in 2010. 2013. Oh, right. Okay. Fucking Google my own album. (laughs) Uh, Oh my God, there's a band called Wild Light. Yeah. They released an album called Adult Nights. (laughs) Adult Nights? Yeah, like a tops off cuddle. Adult sleepover. Um, so this week on the podcast, me and Paul are going to try and talk about um, an album we made called Wild Light, which was released in 2013 and I think is one of the pieces of music that we are most proud of and was also one of the most um, rewarding to make. Would you agree with that, Paul? I would, yeah. Uh, it was also a bit of a end of an era as well, I think, in hindsight. I don't know, when you said that, it just, uh, it, what immediately came to my mind for some reason is the Lightship FM session that we did, which we are at once really proud of, but also made us appear as a band that we really aren't interested in being anymore. Yes. And maybe I'm jumping ahead there. Yeah, it's certainly one of the stronger records we've made, I think. Like the album has a um, a bit, it's a bit paradoxical for us because it's perhaps the album where we felt most able to embrace just being the band that we were rather mm-hmm. than trying to push particular elements of what we wanted to be like. And we actually just used lots of guitars and synths and drums and concentrated more on the arrangements. Yeah, and sound design, the, the overall production. Yes, and the sound design and production. And actually... In that sense, it's probably like it. It's probably interesting to talk about how annoying that is for us. <laughs> that actually, probably the album that you'd find it quite hard to argue isn't a post-rock album, even though we don't really like that term. And so it actually became. It was very well received, I think, and um, that was annoying because we'd kind of spent a lot of time fighting that sound. Mm-hmm. I don't really agree with that, because um, destruction is probably more like that, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to talk about post-rock at all, um, it feels like there's different eras of that. There's like, um, I was listening yesterday, uh, I stumbled across a collected like recordings of Fridge. Do you remember them? Yeah, I do. Which was, uh, some of it was interesting, it was very dated, um, and it's very much that kind of uh, quite thin, gainy guitar sound. Yeah. Um in that sort of, um, oh, I don't know, like slint or 10 rapid era kind of production, um, that, uh, that we were sort of, we were sort of fans of, but it was more of a kind of from the, at the driving, uh, flavor of thin gainy guitars that were quite angular and sharp. Um, and I guess some of our earlier records went for that, but then wild light is nothing like that kind of production technique is it it's very much uh widescreen but without being too bombastic although maybe it does have a certain amount of bombast um which is a kind of i don't know that's like what post-rock sounds like these days is very well produced isn't it it's like i don't know game of thrones soundtrack or something uh it's just a bit too clean yeah a bit too clean but too polished uh, not at all rough around the edges. Yeah, yeah widescreen's a good word. Edges. But all that music we used to listen to was a lot more DIY and has been co-opted into being more well-produced, I think. Yeah. Let's talk about Godspeed. Oh, yeah. Because I was listening to Skinny Fists the other day. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm so much more appreciative of that music now, coming back to it. They've they've always been a, a couple of levels above the the fray, right? Yeah, 
the derivative instrumental guitar stuff because they just keep doing the same thing over and over again and refining it uh, and sort of embrace that. It's like a different approach to us, I guess. Yes, exactly. And they're also, I mean, I don't know anybody from that band, but they're clearly channeling a completely sincere sense of dread and like it, the music is so clearly a response to um having to deal with the world the world and living in it and yeah however kind of pretentious you might find that it's obviously very a very pure and honest um response as long as you're being honest then that kind of disarms any pretension right like if if you can back up what you're saying if you really mean it then so people are always going to find some things pretentious. Totally. But, I think that's what I wanted yeah. to say. Yeah, and I think if we'd gone further down, like I'm, I'm hoping that Wildlight was on the right side of that. Um, I don't think we want to, to, or we haven't kind of gone further down that super hi-fi production route because it, to some degree that does feel like walking away from a sort of rawness, I guess, that, that, that you still hear in Godspeed stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. Like I was, I was listening to the new Health record I think it's new or last year or so. And like they've, they, they've kind of gone in a different direction. That sort of digital maxed out dynamic, like okay. ultra clarity. Yeah. Is, I mean, we were sort of drawn into that for a while. I don't, it doesn't excite me anymore. I mean, I'm glad that they're, they're still, they're still doing it. It's an interesting record, but uh, it's not really what I listen. I don't know. I, I've sort of retreated to the, well, we all have like kind of scruffiness and, and tape piss and maybe that's like nostalgia. But or maybe it's I don't know. Music's getting more and more ephemeral and less and less tied to any kind of physical objects. So, do you remember going to see Health in Sheffield? In Sheffield, in um, at the Harley. Yeah, the Harley. Yeah, I remember drinking afterwards. Yeah, I don't, and then, remember, and then, don't remember the show. <laughs> oh, I remember the show. It was really good. But then we went to um, we kind of went up to the bar and we did like, oh hi, you know, I. Uh, Amazing show, guys, and um, we're actually in a band, you know, 65 Days of Static, expecting them to be like, oh, yeah, okay, great. And they were like, oh, we've never, ever heard of you. And um, then I just remember drinking a lot of Jaeger bombs. Yeah. And uh, I think you're... Salad days. And dancing all night. Yeah, probably. Um, we certainly we're, danced with Esbud and the Witch at the Harley. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Maybe maybe that's a different occasion. Maybe health are too cool for dancing. That's right. I'm conflating two drunken nights. We're dancing with Esmond and the Witch and um, Natalie from Matador Records. Yeah. And then there was another night in that pub where we had to get a 4am flight to Russia and um, my friend Carl got me really drunk and I was sick on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> I, have no, I have no memory of this. Great. <laughs> Well, that's Wild Light. And also three different nights in a pub in Sheffield, which no one needed to hear about. <laughs> oh, I went, to, I went to see Kong there as well. Who? Kong? Kong. That was brilliant. Yeah. And they got and their they mate was. to write meatballs on his chest and they had this whole meatballs intro where they were kind of rapping <laughs> meatballs, meatballs, mama meatballs, while this kid kind of did the truffle shuffle from the Goonies with meatballs written on his... Uh, nipples. Wow. All right, so Wildlight. We were talking about Godspeed. This is the production choices we made on Wildlight. Is that how we got there? Yeah, it is, yeah. So should we go back to that? Okay. Those Godspeed records were, I don't think, don't have that production value to them, but they do have a fantastic production value. Yeah, different choice, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have that thinness that you were talking about with the fridge record. No, absolutely. And, and yeah, thin, thin isn't, isn't necessarily the right word. It doesn't hide its seams, perhaps, is a better way of putting it. Like that fridge record, you know, the, it's, like, it's like half of Fall of Math. Like you can tell the guitar is not quite in tune and it doesn't make it sound bad, but it makes it sound like a guitar being played in a much more material way. Like you're not, um, uh, you're not trying to make this otherworldly sound in fact like we were talking like in wild light heat death infinity splitter that big noise at the beginning you know it's what like six synths and your guitar and uh, everything being smashed together and then put through amplifiers and re-recorded and you know we were doing all of that kind of thing and it was a deliberate effort to to make it like this singular wall of noise sound that didn't have an obvious source mm-hmm. which is a, which is a very different choice to that that kind of I don't want to use the word authenticity because I think that's a really silly word to use 
in music, but that choice of production where it's it's saying that this is a group of musicians in a room playing these instruments as like the primary obvious sources and all of that is kind of like understood by the listener because the listener knows how a band works and what instruments are typically in a band and um it kind of it changes how the music's perceived so like godspeed you know like especially with the sort of the the myth around them of uh, hotel two tango and everything like you listen to that record and it's and you know there's loads of them as well it feels like here's 10 people in a warehouse in some industrial part of um, Canada soundtracking the, the the dread of the world, you know? Like, whereas with Wild Light, it was a choice that we made, which we didn't necessarily make on previous records because we, we didn't have the experience or necessarily like the, the budget or the time to, to not go for that sound, to not try and reveal the space in which the music is being performed. It's to sort of completely detach the music from that to make it this otherworldly thing. Not only are there no instruments being played it's not like it's a collection of instruments being played it's not even uh recognizable instruments as such i've not explained that very it's well. a very hard thing to explain because of course it is a bunch of instruments being played and it is a band but i think what we're talking about is it's hard to define which of these elements are at play but there used to be a lot of records that were made and whether the approach was lo-fi or it was simply that you just got records made for less money. Therefore, the lo-fi approach was sort of what you had to go with. So a lot of those early records, and for us, definitely that was about budget, but presumably there was also people making records with a lo-fi feel that was also a choice. And sometimes both of those elements, budget and choice, were part of the the lo-fi approach. Whereas... Mm -hmm. When we came to make Wild Light, I think there were also lots of bands that we'd been listening to that had higher production values and we wanted a higher production value for that record. And I think what you mean is that what you then end up with is, though, like, so going back to that Godspeed You Black Emperor record, those early Godspeed You Black Emperor records, they have a sense of being a group of musicians in a room, which is partly um, the way they're recorded and partly the sound of the band. Whereas hopefully, I think, and also in our heads, Wild Light is distinct from our previous three albums because it feels like the individual elements that are played on the record are cohesive to a point where you can't actually pick them out in the same way. So there isn't that sense of there being a group of musicians in a room being recorded. It's a more streamlined piece of work obviously that's on a scale of musical production where there are much 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 more streamlined records out there but for us it was a that's what made it distinct and i think maybe bands like mogwai had been doing that 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 they've been doing that for a lot longer we hadn't had the the budget or the approach mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah, I think that makes sense. No, I think I think it does. Um, and because actually, if you were to come to Wildlight now and never having heard it before, it actually does. It sounds like a band. That's obviously what's being suggested. Yes, it does. Like it, it, it was a step. It was a step towards that, I suppose. Um, and there's certain, there's certain elements that I think don't. Like again, like the beginning of Heat Death, just the the noise that plays the melody, um, that is a combination of all of those synths and and the guitar. It's it's kind of. Um, What's that word? Um, gestalt. Gestalt. It's just like it's a singular thing, um, in, in, inseparable. Um, exactly. But yes, of right. course, like, you know, by, by the end of that song, when the drums come in um, and the guitar, there's like the second guitar or third guitar, whatever it is, comes in, um, that, does the, that does the high melody and that's clearly a guitar and the drums are clearly drums and it's sort of picking and choosing, I guess. It's, it's, it's a step toward a, a singular sound that, that um, I think we've kind of kept... Moving towards since Wildlight, right? And in the studio, the best memory of Wildlight is that when we were all in the studio, because we'd written those songs so carefully in advance, apart from the end of Sleepwalk, we knew what everything needed to do. And so the actual recording part happened quite quickly. We kind of got all of the takes down. And then all four of us stopped being musicians with our own particular instrument and became like sound designers and producers, right? And 
stopped thinking in terms of our parts and started thinking in terms of the whole song. Uh, and that was fantastic. You know, all that stuff we were doing with the reamps and getting things onto reel-to-reel tapes and going running next door and messing with the tape machine as it was getting re-recorded back in and just full-on production and sound design, but as as a band rather mm-hmm. than it being the band as a subset as, of like underneath the producer. That was, I think that was really healthy. It was really good. And it was at the same time, as, at the same time as we were sort of like wrapping up that old mode of being in a band, we were opening up this new one. Maybe if that makes sense, that seems to sound right. Like um, we dared ourselves just to, like you were saying earlier, not try and invent some like new paradigm, at least for us in terms of being in a band. We just dared ourselves to write good songs with guitars and pianos and drums and kind of like t- tick that off the list of things. It's like, right, here's some songs, regular old fashioned songs um, with proper arrangements. We've done that now through doing that kind of opened opened up this next like prototype of of how how a band could be or how 65 could be at least right yeah um and then it was a huge commercial success (laughs) and we retired yes um no sorry we were tired so we worked i think though what you just said about like the idea of Heat Death Infinity Splitter, which is the first track on Wildlight, having that gestalt feeling to it in like when it comes in, there is a blend of of sounds there that make a single noise rather than sort of a, a being able to pick out individual instruments is mm-hmm. is very true. But the wider point that I'm trying to get at is as well as that being an approach to songwriting as musicians and and identifying that that's what you want to happen we also had access to a producer and a mixer who who were able to get us that result whereas previously we hadn't been able to do that so what i'm trying to articulate is that while there is also a an attitude to getting those results you also there was also a budget and a plan for getting those results that we'd put into place and i think that's very important that we'd made we'd aimed for that and we took we really took our time making sure that we had the budget and the people in place to do that before we executed those songs for the final time because we'd almost we we'd made we'd written the songs and we'd recorded them if you want in a demo fashion Mm-hmm. as it used to be called, but we then knew we would go and do it again. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, that's quite important, isn't it? That's something that we'd never either had the luxury of doing or we'd never actually identified that we needed to do in order to get the results we wanted. And so maybe we should talk about, well, there were two people involved in Wildlight other than ourselves, who was Dave Sanderson, who was the co-producer and actually did the recording session at Chapel Studios. And then there was Tony Dugan, who we mixed the record with at at Castle of Doom. Mm -hmm. And both of those separate people and those separate studios were quite instrumental in the outcome of the record. Yeah, absolutely. As I think was just the, um, even just the fact of splitting it. Yes. Because all of the previous records had been, um, oh, actually, that's not true, is it? Sorry, exploding. We did it slightly differently, but the whole story of making that is so crazy. We should probably leave it yeah. for a different episode. Um, but yes, usually it was okay. Record a record, and then with the same people in the same studio, the next day, uh, okay, we've done all of the takes. Now we mix it. Now it's done, and it was. It's like quite a concentrated process because studio time was always a rare resource for us, and that was that was the only option we had. The first bit was going to the chapel with Dave Sanderson and we've worked with Dave on almost every record. Is that right? Or at least from um, definitely the Dance Parties EP he was involved with. Okay, so let's just... If we start with Dave, do you want to do his backstory? Well, okay. So briefly, we made a lot of our earlier records at a studio in Sheffield called Two Fly, uh, which was owned by a man called Alan Smythe, who is... I suppose, quietly famous in Sheffield for making independent music. And Dave Sanderson, who is equally prolific and has been involved in loads of projects in Sheffield. And we recorded a lot of those records there. But when it came to um, Wild Light, we had signed a new record deal and we decided that we would 
um, record it in a residential studio in Lincolnshire called Chapel, which has been going for, I think, a good 30 years. And we would mix it at Castle of Doom, which is owned by Tony and Mogwai in Glasgow. So Dave came on board to co-produce and that's because we'd worked with Dave and knew that his attention to individual sounds and how they sounded and how they were going to behave in the song was very good. And he got really good results out of us in that scenario. And he also had a really good working practice with Rob in getting drum sounds and um, recording drums. They were very efficient together. Um, and Dave was also really interested in synth sounds and... Um, amp sounds and was willing to, I suppose, entertain practices that were slightly unorthodox in order to capture bits of audio that were unique and that we felt were pushing the boundaries of what we'd done before. And so we took him away to this residential studio. And also working at a residential studio was an approach that we'd never been able to partake in before. And that was really interesting because you really it really concentrated your focus on the audio that was being made. And just, just to say like a residential studio being somewhere that you go to and stay like all the time. Whereas previously we'd be going back, back to our houses in Sheffield in the evenings. And Right. And you have to then go home and deal with things that happen at your houses in Sheffield, like the boiler being broken or the, the bills coming through the door or. It's just, just real, real life, isn't it? Real life, yeah, exactly. Whereas being at a residential studio, you record all day, you can record until four in the morning and then you lie down and then you can do it again. And so you get this real intensity of, of focus and, and that was really useful. I can't remember if we did this consciously or not, but we really wanted Tony Dugan to mix the record. And so having Dave concentrate on the audio in a sort of... Um, you'll have a good word for this, Paul, because you're clever, but... Um, like having Dave concentrate on the audio specifics. Yeah, it's like each sound in itself, um, not worrying about how they all are going to ultimately fit together. Right. But just every single sound, make that sound the best it can possibly be, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter that it has to fit somewhere in the frequency range. It just just make sure it's great. Exactly. And then have someone like Tony concentrating on the whole picture, like somebody then stepping in who hadn't been through that, process so was able to be less precious about those individual sounds and see the bigger picture where I think we you know once you've worked on a record to that degree we as a band had lost that perspective you just do don't you it's very hard to hear mm -hmm. the the whole thing because you're you concentrating on things that you've worked on in minute detail and really when you mix you should be thinking of how the whole thing comes across having someone like tony who was able to sort of didn't have that connection to it yeah. was something that really worked and i think we we like that practice so much and that we then have used that on subsequent well we used it on no man's sky and on the new as yet untitled 65 record woohoo yeah as yet unannounced as well oh yeah well there you go okay <laughs> i've told someone in the pub actually who i know will tell everybody so <laughs> um okay. yeah so so that yeah and then one of the great things about dave is that as we've all sort of learned together he has like he's, he's up for the unorthodox stuff but his his natural approach is is quite often slight just like a few shades different to our approach and he isn't scared of having that argument and that opinion that's different from ours and i feel like we've all learned to to disagree without it being about yeah, you know, without actually arguing, arguing, but in a really healthy way, and one or the other of us will win, um, or the, or some compromise to be found that's better than both approaches. And because what you don't want in a studio situation where I mean, we should make it clear to anyone listening to the podcast that when we say we had a bigger budget, we were still working under a very limited time frame. We had to make all our studio days count. Yeah, you don't really want someone in the studio who wants to try everything for the sake of trying it. You need to get right to the heart of the matter, don't you? And I think Dave's very good at, at doing that. Yeah, it's like the balance, the balancing act, isn't it? Getting right to the heart of it as quickly as possible, but leaving enough time open for unexpected exp experimentation. To exactly. But you don't want those experiments to spiral out of control because you'd end up losing whole days. You, you have to, 
anyway, yeah. I think we've made that point. You're still listening to the 65 Days of Static podcast and we're discussing our fifth album, Wild Light. So let's think about the gestation of that record. I think we had made three records for Kim at Monotreme Records and then we made a fourth record called We Were Exploding Anyway, which was quite a dancey record. It has a sound all of its own. Mm -hmm. We mixed that over Skype with Alex Newport and we'd also fallen out with somebody when we were recording that record. We didn't have a record label when we started making Wildlight. We didn't have a manager. I think those two facts were part of the writing process. Yeah, it was a long period of... Well, we, we did Exploding. We were fed up with all of that for many reasons. Fed up with the industry side of that. We did Silent Running as like a palate cleanser. But yeah, we just started then writing Wildlight on our own. All on our own. In that room in Stagworks. We wrote it for, what, what two years or something? Yep. There, there was a period of like six months at least when I was living in Sheffield, I remember, in, in that flat, where we were still kind of doing it like almost like office hours, right? Five days a week down in that room, stubbornly forcing out those songs out because it was definitely a record where there was a huge amount of material. I remember there being quite quickly, like we knew what was going to be on the record. I, I will have remembered this wrong though, so that's fine. Well, there is no one true history, is there? Whoa. What does that mean? <laughs> Who's to say? Which one of us is right? I'm right. <laughs> there we, there we go. Then. <laughs> but what about all of those other songs? Like we even demoed. Uh, what was that? Like Entropicana. Oh my those, god! Like, lost, those lost <laughs> gems. Yeah, there's only a few tracks there, wasn't there? There's only a few tracks demoed, but um, I could name some of these things. Like um, okay, Paul's going to name some 65 days of static tracks that didn't make it onto Wildlight. One was called Entropicana. Entropicana. There was Negative Empathy. Do you remember that one? Nope, I don't actually. There was that one that sounded too much like Heat Death. Oh, Domo Arigato. That means thanks a lot in Japanese, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. These are working titles. Yeah. Arguably all of our titles are working titles. But we spent, we spent about two years writing that record. I think maybe we were slowly learning to go a bit easier on ourselves because forcing ourselves into that room 10 hours a day, every single day, even though we couldn't get anywhere, was, was a bit self-defeating. But at the same time, I don't know. We definitely wrote those songs to a degree that we've never written anything else in terms of how much we all knew about those songs down to the bar level and what everyone else was doing, bar by bar. And I don't know why we did that exactly. I don't know at what point that became a conscious decision. Uh, if it was just because we knew that we were going to try and step it up and were worried about studio time or the lack of studio time and just wanted to make sure that we knew what we were getting ourselves into. I think we just felt like it became apparent quite soon that that's what it needed to be like. The songs were quite demanding. There was less going on. And that's not a joke, is it? Like compared to the chaos of some of the early stuff we were doing, we were really consciously trying to give everything some more space to breathe. Mm -hmm. And he, there is still a lot going on on that record, I think, but it felt like a real change. It felt sparser. And we were really interested in, therefore, if we were giving sound room to breathe, how was it going to present itself in the finished product and i think that's when we became quite obsessive over the individual elements yeah like the the spectral domain of all of the songs not just the yeah the problem with this talking about this now is that like i don't know if that highlights that we were really growing as musicians and becoming more professional and more attentive to the writing process or really whether we were just a bit haphazard to begin with and we should have been better earlier <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be both though i think professionalism is overrated and be overrated in this line of work right mm -hmm. and who wants to be that good at music <laughs> <laughs> there's a really good interview isn't there with um either jeff barrow or adrian utley mm. about uh, making third mm -hmm. which actually as a record is a really good example of highly producing some lo-fi ideas yeah because sure. it's wonderful you know that like the feeling and the um, the playedness of a lot of it 
but it also has this wonderful overall sheen to it. Anyway, there's a really good interview with him where he talks about being obsessed for a long time with scales and chords and how music theory works and how things relate to each other and then like almost feeling like that could only get you so far and going back to this like more feral attitudinal way of making music that disregarded all that or tried to right yeah that makes sense because because with music or anything creative really you can sort of build your own like knowledge framework because i've learned loads of stuff about certain aspects of making music certainly like electronic music and midi programming and all of that but i don't know a thing about scales or like classical music theory i can read music very slowly and that's about it but that doesn't matter because because actually cutting yourself off from the traditional roots or the established roots, but still having a desire to make music just forces you to boost these other elements that you've incorporated into music making, like you and your, your guitar pedal library, you know, that like the investment in that sort of knowledge of the different combinations yeah. of how they all work and routing matrices and stuff. Like you can't ever write that. Well, I mean, you especially can write it down, but you know, people aren't ever going to be teaching signal flows of guitar pedal boards in in music lessons at GCSC, are they? They're going to be talking about scales and whatever. But that doesn't necessarily mean that scales are a better road to making music than messing with guitar pedals. No, just for the record, I don't have a guitar pedal matrix. It's not really my attitude, and I would hate for people to think that I was like that because I think my attitude is more throw things in a bag and see what they do. (laughs) So... Don't accuse me of having any sort of spreadsheet approach to any of this. Apologies. Accepted. (laughs) Also, my guitar pedal um, library is not as big as it would be if we were actually a successful band that sold records. Did you see that Sonic Youth video that um, Lee Ronaldo walking around Sonic Youth's warehouse? Uh There's some serious stuff in there. You can imagine what our equivalent of that would be. It'd be hilariously rubbish. Just a lot of drum heads, isn't it? Yeah, here's a broken kettle. Here's a small collection of uh, of ADAT leads. Here's a box of things that Sai won't throw away because he's adamant that he can fix them. <laughs> That's 90% of the room at this point. Yeah, he never gets around to it, does he? So are we done with Wildlight or do we need to wrap that up? Or I feel like there were more good times. With Wildlight? Yeah. I don't know why that Lightship FM thing came to my head back at the beginning, but I, th- I think that was like the last the last show in that whole campaign, right? Yeah. We'd, we'd done the big touring, really big touring. We were really good at playing those songs. Yeah. And we sort of ended on that boat in London doing that studio session. And it's really good representations of those songs. But at the same time, we come across as four... Well, five, because Frank's playing guitar on one of them. Serious dudes. Frank looks really good in that video. Frank looks the best by far, yes. The rest of us are very serious about our earnest guitar-driven music. So what we're talking about is a session that we recorded at the end of touring Wildlife out near the Millennium Dome. I can't remember what that part of London's called. Boris Johnson's failed state, right? Yeah. that unused um, chairlift or something. Boris Johnson's unused chairlift. No, that's what it is, right? I know, yeah. Because that, that fucking no, bastard... No one in, uses it and he spent about a billion dollars on it. Or the dollars, the Garden Bridge, right. you know about the Garden Bridge? Millions, millions have been pumped into that and it's not getting built. Anyway, what Paul's talking about is a session that we did out near the Millennium Dome in a, a boat, a beautiful old coal boat or something, but had been converted into a studio and the guy lived there as well, didn't he? He lived on the boat. And yeah. you can see it on YouTube, it's called Lightship fm or lightship sessions or something and frank was playing with us and frank is our friend and he was at the time our guitar tech and somewhere in the middle of all that touring he got roped into playing extra guitar on three tracks mm-hmm. and he was pretty good at it yeah it was good to have him on that session and if you go and look at that session he looks cooler than we do because he's frank yeah, and I guess we'll get we'll go into all of these honorary sixty five members on some episode or other. He's very much one of them, isn't he? Yes. Maybe it's it's not something to 
draw attention to really because I, I do think those songs sound great I think they're really good versions of them there's just something about the earnestness of the whole it feels like a bygone age that there is no time for in this desperate contemporary moment it's music that's a little bit too satisfied with its own it's just some guys playing on the boat which is all I don't know I don't know I don't know why I'm why it makes me uneasy but I'm not speaking just for me am I that it, it, it was all of us sort of felt that it was a band that we weren't against exactly, but we were happy to to move on from being. Yeah. Maybe in hindsight, that was, we didn't need to react to it so strongly because we, obviously we are that band still. I guess we just don't want to be confined to being four more serious men with guitars. No, unfortunately, a lot of the time we are that band on stage, aren't we? I mean, we can't, it's, it, it's not for us because we are, we are those guys, right? The future is not ours to claim but on a sort of institutional level. And so the four of us as individuals aren't making a claim to the future in a way that perhaps we thought we once were in that kind of great naivety of thinking that there could be a new type of pop band and we could be it, or there's a new music that's as yet unwritten that we could find, you know. Yeah. Um, but the brave, new, exciting future of pop music, I th as I think we mentioned last week, that's for other people to claim people a little bit more or a little bit less representative of dinosaurs than we are. It's Billy Eilish, isn't it? Sorry? It's Billy Eilish. I don't know who that is. Cheat spiders and stuff. Okay. It's quite dark, I think. Oh, okay. I've seen I've seen billboards. It's very spare. Right. Okay. I've not listened. I'll I'll check it out. Is it good? Um I, I don't think it's aimed at me. Okay. It is cool. I think it has a there's a little bit of Lord in there. Well that's good. I think Lord is more aimed at us, isn't it? So, but there's definitely a, a bit of that influence. So, but would, would you actually not say like the future isn't really in music, is it? No, the future's in these kids who are marching for climate change acknowledgement, and the struggle has moved on. Absolutely, and and uh, even even in a kind of more artistic, creative world that's less activist, the boundaries between all of these roles have are kind of dissolving. You know, there's people on YouTube who talk about. I don't know, music, tech that are more famous than we ever will be. And, you know, they just make music as a byproduct of their role as talking about, talking about music technology or the new sampler from whoever. Or do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's what people look to for entertainment that includes music isn't the same anymore. Yeah. We are definitely the old guard. And so it's, a, it's interesting because it forces us as individuals who can only ever be us, um, being sort of more and more separated from the forefront of... We feel more and more removed from it than ever and also feel... Well, I think I would say that I'm... I'd, yeah, I mean, I'd be very careful of... I don't want to examine us, our place too much, but no. we're not really part of an old God. I think you, I maintain that part of the reason that we're so unsure of ourselves, is, which is, I think is probably a an asset at this point is that we never really got invited upwards and our position never has never really got any better. And so to some degree, we don't really have anything to lose. And I think that's what sets us apart because mm -hmm. we don't have to protect our place on festival billings or we don't have to make sure that we get broadsheet record reviews so that our historically large fan base will keep buying our records because it doesn't happen to us. Mm -hmm. And therefore... I would hope that our, if we have anything to offer, because I agree with you that we're, in broad cultural terms, we're dinosaurs, yes, but we also have maybe a little bit of an underdog mentality that I think we have a right to. Yeah. That's a valid angle, isn't it, from which to view these things? I agree, yeah, and I didn't, I didn't really mean to sound so down on us because it's just like, okay, yes, like in, in those broad strokes... Music has moved on and turned into something different. But, but yes, within ourselves, like I really believe that we're writing better music than ever. And we're finding all of these ways to, to try different things out. And, you know, we were just touring as a, as a three piece uh, in a completely different way as a sort of parallel track to all of the more usual band things. And that worked. It worked because, in part, because we are so uh, self-sufficient. <laughs> Like you say, we've just sort of been left to fend to ourselves. Sometimes get a glimpse into the way that other bands have 
operated over the last decade and the resources that they have access to, even on this kind of like low DIY level, but like the, you know, the proper bands who you might hear on Six Music or something. Like there's so many things that we've actually not had. And it's actually, it's amazing that we've come so far really and are still interested in doing new things with the form that isn't just the four of us standing on stage playing music or making records. So yes, with it, with, within our little domain, I think we're still a, still a vital force <laughs> or, or still have the potential to be. Well done us. Yeah. So, yep, that was us talking about Wildlight, which is, I think, probably personally one of the best things I've ever been involved in. And it was a very, really unique experience and you can listen to it and it's really good. Do you listen to it? I did listen to it a bit when I was doing my degree. I wrote some essays to it, went down a rabbit hole one afternoon and listened to some of our old records. And um, that's the one I got all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) It was good. It was good. It reinforced that thing for me that actually a lot of how music sounds is augmented by what you think it sounds like. Yeah, right. Which is a fascinating phenomenon, isn't it? And maybe we could talk about that another time. Right. Not much about music is actually the music. No. It's, it's all it's all of that other stuff, isn't it? L- yeah. Great. Cool. Okay. Um, bye. Bye. The four to the five to the six to the five to the six to the five to the six to the five six to the five six to the five six to the five. Thanks for listening to the second episode of Bleak Strategies, a podcast by us, 65 Days of Static. You can access the 65 subscription service at subscription.65daysofstatic.com. The link to this is also in the episode notes of the podcast, as well as links to the three videos that featured on the live ship fm session that we mentioned in the episode so during the first episode we asked people to get in touch if they had any questions or comments on the podcast and if you do have further questions you can find us at 65 dos on twitter or you can email us at mail at 65 days of so firstly comments from the first episode paul are you ready yes derek writes i'd love to hear more from paul's tech corner in future episodes well this is fantastic news matt hill adds i just wanted to say fuck yeah to the idea of paul getting more nerdy on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) and at words from lee says ps voting yay with conviction the best kind of yay for paul's tech corner i guess that's decided so welcome to paul's tech corner Are we doing it now? Yep, we're doing it right now. What's the tech? I didn't think that was the plan. I didn't think we're actually going to go into then. Okay. Be a thing that's the tech corner. It's a thing we could we do in the future or something. No? What what is it? Let's answer some other questions first then. So are we going to get a high quality sounding release from one of the decomposition theory gigs or is the album based around those songs? Thanks, Derek. A bit of both, right? Some of the decomp stuff turned into some of the record stuff. Some of it got lost forever. Some of it has already been released with the first release, uh, the Casimir release of Unreleasable. But a lot of it was more about the the mechanics behind it, I guess, than the actual specifics of those gigs. We didn't do a great job of documenting the actual gigs in terms of recording. So I think there might be a few bootlegs floating around. The stuff that was worth keeping, we've certainly kept. But from the beginning, the idea of decomposition theory was less about the... It was more of a new practice, a new approach to composing, as much as it was any particular song or particular performance, right? So, uh, yeah, naturally some songs did emerge from it and we uh, they will be heard. For us, it's never really been under a very clear banner of the decomposition theory sessions as such. It's more a temporary marker for us to help like explain and experiment. Great. Hope that answers your question, Derek. (laughs) Reformat spelt at R3F0RM4T asks, other than the new album, will there be physical releases of the subscription music? Presumably the subscribers will only have access to the extra material in digital format, but will there be any physical copies made? I think the answer to that is no, there probably won't be. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think this might have ended up in our frequently asked questions, actually. Read the frequently asked questions. (laughs) 
is your answer. Like it would slow everything. Like if, even putting aside the the cost of making the physical objects, it would slow the project down very much. You know, what's the turnaround time for vinyl at the moment? It's months, isn't it? And with sticking to the digital domain, we can move really quickly and keep this quite lively and spontaneous. I do feel lively and spontaneous. I can tell, yeah. Great. Tom says quite a lot, actually. I think there's a question in here. Tom, having listened to your podcast this morning, I thought it was exactly what it should have been. Just a couple of blokes having a chat. <laughs> My only suggestions would be to have a weekly topic to loosely follow. Maybe science, politics. I know it's depressing, but sometimes it's nice to hear reasonably normal people have their view on current affairs. Cool but free music software you use. And even films, music recommendations that you guys have been inspired by or have just found out about. Paul. I don't care what you think about science. Okay. Could you talk about politics without being too depressing, please, for right now? Right. Yes. <laughs> without being depressing. Yes, please. I, I doubt it. Mm -hmm. um, well, the problem with the moment is that I suppose specifics of politics are moving a bit too fast for this podcast to respond to the way that we're recording it at the moment and coming out monthly. What we're recording right now is coming out in June, correct? Yeah. So, I don't know, if we want to talk about Brexit, then it's almost pointless because everything will have changed. It's a mess. The world has been hijacked by liars, vampires and thieves. More of the same, I imagine, in June. More liars, vampires and thieves. Yes. I can't see how that might change. No. Could you tell us about some cool but free music software that you use? Cool and free. Cool and free. Tidal Cycles is free and it's open source and you can do live coding with it. If you follow at Yaxu, Y-A-X-U, that's a guy called Alex McLean who invented the software and is very good at teaching it uh, in various forms online and could answer all possible questions. Awesome answer, Paul. Do you want to tell us about a, a, a nice film that you've seen that you recommend? Better be highbrow, better be cool. I've not seen anything good for a really long time. I watched a documentary about Pina Bausch, the dancer, who David Bowie was a big fan of. A Wim Wenders film that he made in 2011 and she died just before he started making it. She was meant to be in it, but instead it's about all of the dancers who were in her long-term dance group. And it's amazing. And even if you don't think you like contemporary dance, you should watch it because it's stunning. Tom, watch that. I think I do like contemporary dance. You will if you watch this film. Okay, Matt Hill asks, I wanted to ask about your interactions with so many custom AV setups. The Prisms video, DIY Unity prototyping, Algorave, 65 DOS OS. You all seem to have plenty of experience wrestling tools to work together and presumably without big support teams and media servers. That last bit is certainly true. The Prisms video we didn't make, that was a guy called Matt Pearson, who is at Zen Bullets on Twitter. Nice guy. And probably our favourite video. Yeah, I'd say so. Of recent times. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, we do work more and more with Unity, the decomposition theory, visuals, and the 65 Days OS stuff is all running inside of Unity. The Algorave, we're very much sort of like dilettantes, I think, in terms of the live coding community. I'm, I'm glad that we're sort of vaguely visible and bringing attention to that scene, but there's more people doing much more kind of integral and interesting things in that community than, than we are at the moment. Again, like Tidal Cycles, I think is a place to start with that. Um, and that's that's what we use, unless we're rolling our own in either Unity or Max for Live. We just sort of make it work because we don't have the big support teams and media servers, just a few laptops. It doesn't feel like a very satisfying answer, but... Let's try and answer this. Words from Lee asks, glitch tips, question mark? <laughs> um, I'm assuming that's tips on how to make glitch yeah of which you are an old dog <laughs> um, having some outside recording setup so you can literally crash a sampler or a computer without having to use that sampler to record the glitch Oof. is, is kind of handy great there used to be a way to Akai S2000 there was a combinations and buttons you could press to to freeze it 
I've forgotten what they are. So try and overwhelm your equipment and then record it being overwhelmed. Yeah, rather than trying to catch it within its own its own self. Cool, that's this week's glitch tip. <laughs> It'll be every week's glitch tip, I think. Uh, how much distortion is too much distortion? Well, that depends on what you're trying to do. Yeah. On the one hand, the correct answer is... Never too much. Never too much. But that's not but, true. No. I remember a band we all saw that we really respected. I don't want to name them. Um, it was a long time ago. It was like right near the beginning of 65, actually. Um, noise band that we all really liked. Was it Shed 7? <laughs> 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 yes, it was Shed Seven. Great, um, and they were doing their, you know, their noise set. Yeah, um, and it just got really boring after the second song because once you've filled all of the frequencies, there is nowhere else to go. Ooh, who's um, that? So you know, white noise is really nice sometimes, but can't get noisier than that. So don't go there first. Yeah, unless you're on your own, and that's what you want. Yeah. Okay, a question from Twitter. I'm not sure who from. Are Silent Running and Stumble Stop Repeat ever going to make it to Spotify? I suppose they could technically, but um, and they might have done earlier if we'd thought to do it, but at the moment, because we've rethought through the way we use Bandcamp and uh, have made them available to subscribers, it seems like a bit of a slight to them to stick them on Spotify right now. Plus, you know, anything to not help Spotify. Nick Ferguson 107 asks... How did you guys get to meet youth movies? Um, we can't remember. <laughs> Which everything about youth movies is blurry. Yeah. Are you still in contact with them? Yeah. Al does a really good show sometimes on on a Sunday afternoon where you can listen to him DJing his phenomenal. It must be in Al's record collection must be out of this world because it was a whole room in his house when we knew him. Mm -hmm. we'll put a link in the linky Colton O'Connor oh my god I'd love to hear how when you're developing new songs or algorithms or whatever you separate <laughs> the wheat from the chaff there's a great deal of chaff and a small amount of wheat that's kind of what Colton O'Connor's question is they say I just can't imagine being in the room while someone turns a dial or turns 15 dials and then suddenly says, yep, it wasn't good enough 60 seconds ago, but now we've really got something. That is pretty much the bit about music you can't explain. Yeah. So I'm not going to try. No. I think what's good practice, or what we've done that's been good in hindsight, is getting used to making a lot of chaff, <laughs> not feeling too bad about it. Like a lot of it's going to be rubbish, and that's okay. So a high chaff to wheat ratio... And then there's also that, I don't know how you'd explain it, but that, that feeling like there's like an event horizon or there's a, there's a moment where before that moment, you're putting everything into a song and refusing to accept that it, it's anything other than the best song that's ever been written or you're never going to like let it be released. But then you cross over this thing and th then you have to finish it for better or worse. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we probably brought it up in the Wild Light stuff, but I can't remember now. So maybe just ignore all of that. Maybe it's not really an answer to this question anyway. 